science enthusiasts. I'm your host, Jason Zakowski. I'm a high school chemistry teacher, but you probably know our dogs, Bunsen and Beaker. They're the science dogs on social media. This show takes what's best from their account, the curiosity and fun found there, and swirls it into podcast form. Every week, we're going to take some deep dive into an area of science and look at the research that's going on with our pets. We'll also have an expert guest who will enthrall you with their area of knowledge. This is The Science Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Science Podcast. We hope you're happy and healthy out there. Oh, man, the temperatures are rising in Alberta and the dogs are melting. (laughs) It's been really hot. Hot for us in Alberta. There's a heat wave going through most of Canada on the west coast of Canada, like the interior of British Columbia. Um, Temperatures are are scorching and it's been really hot for us. Don't worry, we're beating the heat and we're keeping the dogs out of the sun, um, taking them for walks in the morning or late at night. And the hose is helping too. On the Science Podcast this week, a science article this week takes a look at a human skull from a newly discovered species of human. Cool. Our pet science article takes a look at the power of the dog's nose to sniff out diseases. And our expert guest this week is Adrienne Wilson, who's going to talk to us about aquatic life. Hey dogs, have you been surfing the net? It's really fun, unless you're a fish. (laughs) Ah! (laughs) Oh, so you're going to let me know how you feel about that one. All right, on with the show. Because there's no time like science time. This week in science news, we're going to take a look at the science article that's been making the rounds. You might have heard of it about a new skull that was found and nicknamed the Dragon Man. No, this skull is not part dragon, part human, though that would be really cool. There's a couple problems to that, like, um, you know, mythical dragons, to our best knowledge, don't exist. <laughs> uh, but this this is from a skull that was unearthed and surfaced in China. It's been really big from an evolutionary point of view for humans. It's a nearly complete male skull, and it's housed in the GEO University in Shanghuang, China. And it represents a new species that's been called the Homo Yongge. Um, by the paleoanthropologist Shine Nye and his colleagues. The skull dates back to about 146,000 years ago. There are three papers that have been written about the skull, and um, they're published in the June 25th, The Innovation Journal. So the skull was received in 2018 from a farmer who said the fossil had been dug up by his grandfather in 1933. So there's a little bit of fishiness to that story. We don't know if that's really true or not, but it was basically scooped out of a river sediment and kept as kind of like a family heirloom and then passed on to the scientists. Now, what makes this special is that the, the skull features, the cranium is a combination of features that basically sets it apart from other homo species. The name H. Yonge or Liongge derives from um, the term in Chinese for the province where it was found. It's basically Dragon River, thus Dragon Man. What we know about the skull is that it housed a large brain um, on top of a relatively short face and small cheekbones. There were also some features that mix with Neanderthals, such as um, thick brow ridges, big molars, and almost kind of like square eye sockets. So it's a mix of more what we think of Homo sapiens, us, and the Neanderthal. This skull, using the decay of radioactive uranium, 
um, has a minimum age of 146,000 years ago. And they took a look at what was, you know, trapped on the skull and the sediment still attached to it. And it's in the Harbin area of China. So the re- what the researchers talked about in their paper is they were trying to put the this fossil, this human, this sub, you know, species of type human on the continuum of other types of humans at that time. So the, using statistical analysis and, and bone structure, they indicate that H. Yonge shared a common ancestor with our Homo sapien ancestors close to 100,000 years ago. Now, what's really interesting about that is that H. Yonge is a little bit closer to us evolutionarily than the Neanderthals. So that's what's making a little bit of waves is perhaps this dragon man is now the, the, the closest to humans that we have in the fossil record. What's really interesting is when these teams get into like the history of where these people are and what they were doing at that time is I, I actually learned a lot. So um, these the traits of these uh, these these humans indicate that they were really small groups and they traveled within Africa, Asia, and Europe, and they would interbreed with Neanderthals and another type of human at the time called Denisovians, and they would trek back and forth across continents. They were limited by how cold northern the northern parts of the world were remember like these were ancient humans and until they figured out the technology to wear furs and and things like that they were trapped basically by the temperatures of the time they could they had to stay near temperate regions as temperatures warmed these groups all of these different groups traversed what's now northern china around 300,000 years ago what what happened as these groups spread out is they became isolated and they developed their own traits and they would only be basically bonk into another different types of humans when they were making these immense treks across great distances. It was almost like they ran into each other by chance. So if you hear Dragon Man in the news, that's where it comes from. It's a it's a skull that was found in China that, you know, has now been released to the university only a couple of years ago. And the studies and the analyzations of it have now been published in, in, in journals. And it's closer to us than the Neanderthal so says their research. I'm sure they're hoping to get more information. It's, it says in their study they're hoping to you know try and extract some usable DNA from it. And uh, I don't know how likely that is. And, and hopefully scour that region where it was found uh, for more bones. That's science news for this week. This week in pet science, we're going to look at the ability of dogs to detect different types of cancer from urine samples and specifically prostate cancer. One of the really interesting things that's come out of the end of this pandemic is just how crazy powerful dog noses are. We've spoken before that dogs can smell out COVID in samples and on clothing. So this study takes a look at the ability for dogs to sniff out cancer in urine samples from people. And what's interesting about this study is they're applying how the dog sniffed it out to something that humans could use, like an artificial neural network. So just a little bit of backstory. There is a widely used prostate-specific antigen screening test. And one of the things that it can do is catch most types of prostate cancer, but it can also miss aggressive prostate cancer, or it might indicate that you have aggressive cancer when you don't, or you have little risk to it. And there are other tests being explored that could help this out. But one of the interesting things is that dogs can be trained to detect prostate cancer in urine samples with a very high degree of accuracy. Now, 
an issue with using dogs to sniff out COVID, an issue with dogs to sniff out prostate cancer is the dog needs to be trained. I can't, we just can't get Bunsen or Beaker to do it. It takes a special type of dog and you can't, you just put them everywhere, right? So they're not great for uh, large scale screening for prostate cancer. So this is a pilot study uh, released in findings in the open access journal PLOS1 in this year in February. The researchers trained two dogs to detect prostate cancer in urine samples. So the dogs were right about the cancer about 71% of the time, and they were able to detect the specific type of cancer 76% of the time. Okay, so now here's where things get really interesting. What the team did is they set up a neural network that learned from how the dogs were detecting the samples. They use laboratory detection methods um, on the urine samples, like gas chromatography, mass spectroscopy, so like advanced stuff to find the VOCs, volatile organic compounds, and the analysis of microbial species in the urine. But they took the cues from the dog. So when the dog identified the sample or when the dog identified the specific type of cancer, it taught the neural network what chemicals to help look for. Now, it wasn't like the dog was teaching, the dog wasn't there like woofing to teach the neural network. Um, The scientists took what the dogs found and that data was plugged into the artificial neural network. That's how it learned, right? It wasn't like it wasn't like a camera watching the dogs. That's what I was hoping for. It was like this artificial intelligence was like studying the dog and trying to mimic it. No, it was it was uh, it was entered later by the researchers. The good thing is, is that it showed promise in that the data from the dogs was helping to teach the neural network determine which type of cancer and if there was cancer in the sample. These findings suggest that in large studies. And with large groups of like lots of data from dogs, they could uh, help improve screening processes for prostate cancer. We could use the dog's data to help teach our AI to detect cancer better. It's possible then to replicate the dog's performance with our own sensor brains in the lab. That's pet science for this week. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the science podcast this week. The Science Podcast is always going to be free to download, but if you want to support the show, there's a couple things you can do. The first one is sign up on our Patreon page, patreon.com backslash Burner. There's multiple tiers of support. We have a ton of fun with the patron group. You get to be on the podcast. You get postcards from Bunsen and Beaker. You get swag. You get early pictures. You get a whole bunch of awesome stuff. So check it out. The lowest tier is only five bucks a month. The other way you could support the show is checking out our merch shop. Our merch shop is hilarious. It's got all of these adorable cartoons of Bunsen and Beaker. We keep producing more. I just want to thank the people that have supported the show that way. We're really, really proud of our merch shop because the, the merch, the clothes, is really high quality. The colors are vibrant and um, we come up with some really fun designs all the time. So check it out. That's at BunsenBurnerBMD.com. Thanks, everybody. On to the interview. It's time for Ask an Expert on the Science Podcast. And I have Adrienne Wilson, PhD candidate with me today. How are you doing today, Adrienne? I'm doing well. I I just finished my finals, so I'm... Oh! (laughs) Did it go okay or was it a bit rough? Or do you not know? (laughs) I I think it went well, but... Oh, good. Once I get my grades back, but I'm feeling good about it. 
That's it's always so so nerve wracking. I never got as far in school as you did. Like I just have, I have two bachelor degrees, right? So, um, mm-hmm. but I remember finals in university was nerve wracking for sure. <laughs> yes, yep. And I thought in undergrad that was going to be my last time taking finals, and now, like six years later, here I am still doing it. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Hey, <laughs> uh, where are you calling into the podcast from? Where are you in the world? I'm in Miami, Florida, right now. Oh, is it so hot and muggy right now, or is it? Or do you have like uh, that's what I, people always tell me about Florida? Um, that's actually my preferred temperature. So yes. Oh, <laughs> it's really humid, and I'm loving it. Oh, good for you. That's awesome. Yeah, being up in Alberta, Canada, that kind of weather just destroys us. So, jeez, <laughs> oh, yeah, I cannot imagine. <laughs> we have a little drier climate. That's all. <laughs> Um, and uh, are you and your family doing okay with coronavirus? Has, is everything going okay with that? Um, my immediate family is doing well. Thankfully, no one has gotten sick. Everyone, you know, social distanced and did all that. So um, mm. I'm relieved and happy that everyone is okay. And, and some of them are getting vaccinated now, including myself. So oh, good. Actually, yeah, it's it's a huge relief. Do you know what team you are? What team you're going to be? Oh, I got mine. I'm team Pfizer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's what my wife got. She's team Pfizer too. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. She was uh, rubbing it in my face because um, I got the AstraZeneca. That's the one that Canada got um, for my age oh. group. And uh, yeah, it hit me like uh, like the, the immune response for my age group was like profound. <laughs> I'm so glad I got it, but it knocked me on my butt for about 24 hours. <laughs> oh no. It's all oh, good. It's all good. <laughs> It's better than COVID, right? Like, uh, it's, oh, absolutely. Yeah, like I was, I was so, I was so stoked to get it, and I knew there was a bit of an immune response to the AstraZeneca. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. have you got both your Pfizer's or just the first shot? Yes, I got both. I'm all done. Oh, nice. nice. I didn't get any side effects, thankfully. Although, what I friends who did, I, I was okay. You are superhuman. <laughs> <laughs> so, speaking of superhuman, super you. Uh, what are you doing with your science journey right now? Can you tell everybody a little bit about your your science training? You're a PhD candidate. Yes. So I'm in or ending the fourth year of my PhD program. Ooh. I'm at the University of Miami in the marine biology and ecology department. Um, and so I've really enjoyed it. Um, I got my master's before this and it was in Tallahassee. So I'm glad to be in Miami where um, I can go to the beach more often. Right. Tallahassee's more inland, isn't it? Yes. Yep. I think it's about an hour from the beach. Oh man. You know how far I am from any beach? That's actually <laughs> the ocean. It's, how far? it's like an 18 hour straight drive. So I'm oh so, so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so you got, you're, you're deep into science. Uh, like right now you're studying fish. Like it's, we'll get to that in a second, but when you were younger, did you have uh, like, what, what got you passionate about science um, to, to like, this is pretty, this is pretty intense what you're taking. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So um, when I was in elementary school, um, my family lived across the street from a beach. And I think that kind of started a lot of my fascination with the ocean Um, It was a lake, but it was still a mystery to me. um, I spent a lot of time also watching um, the Discovery Channel and Animal Planet and documentaries on the ocean and its mysteries. And that kind of got me hooked from an early age. And I stuck with it. Wow. That's so did you have you grown up in Florida your whole life? 
So I was in um, Chicago on Lake Michigan. Oh, oh okay. Gotcha. School. Yep. And then uh, I moved to Florida when I was entering the fifth grade and I was mm. there until I graduated from high school. Right. So the, you've had like a connection to the, the water for your whole life. Yes. A really long time. And in high school, I even went to um, a environmental science academy. So a lot of our teachers were marine scientists and they would take us to the Everglades and to the beach. And what? Yeah. Science experiments in high school. That's so cool. <laughs> were they like, don't go over there, children. You're going to get ate by a gator. <laughs> we we did have to watch out for gators. Uh, <laughs> none ever got any closer than, you know, uh, we were in a kayak and it was on the shore. So it was, it was okay. It's just different wildlife, right? Uh, in Florida versus Alberta. When, when, oh. when we take kids like backpacking or on some kind of trip, we're like, don't go over there, children. There's a bear or that's a moose. <laughs> don't go near the moose. It will grind right. you into hamburger. Jeez, <laughs> oh, and, and then here we have bears and alligators. So. Yeah, yeah, they they stretch down the, to the Everglades, don't they? Um, I or know some... Florida panthers in the Everglades, but I think the bears. I know we at least get them in Tallahassee. You're you're just all in on fish. So wh- yes. why why fish? Um, I don't know. For some reason, I've just always loved them. I think they look cool. I like the different colors they come in. And I guess when I was younger, I always wanted to be a mermaid. And so the idea. Of- <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> so the idea of swimming along fish was just awesome to me. Um, and I made it my career, I guess. Isn't there a big battle on Twitter, like team fish versus some other animal? I thought there that was happening like a year ago. There's some big Twitter battle. Oh, I, I'm not sure, but I know that there was like um, a shark contest going on and people were voting for their favorite kind of shark and so oh, okay for a while a shark is just like a metal fish like it's just like a heavy metal fish like it's a punk yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um did you did you do any fishing when you were young or like when you were on the beach did you snorkel or like did you go to marine like uh exhibits and see the fish swimming about yeah, so I've I've always um, pressured my parents to take me to aquariums in every city that we're in. So I got to do that a lot. And then in high school, um, I did go snorkeling. Um, they had field trips where we would like swim with manatees. Oh, cool. Northern rivers. And um, yeah, I just spent, generally spent, oh, fishing. My uncle and my dad used to go fishing all the time and I wasn't allowed to go because I was a girl and just thought I couldn't handle um, all of the, I guess, blood and guts that kind of goes along with. <laughs> um, so I didn't get to do that a lot growing up, but I recently bought my own fishing pole and I've been going out myself and it's been so much fun. Are, have you caught stuff? Yeah. So for my research, I've actually caught some of the samples that I need. So it's been so much fun. Oh my goodness. Like get her done. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, okay. So let's get into what you're studying right now. It's, um, it's called, is, am I saying it right? The lane snapper? Is that, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So could you tell our audience, like, um, that's what is, that's what your, your PhD research, I believe is about like, what, what is the lane snapper and why are you studying it? Um, so I know a lot of people are probably more familiar with red snapper, which is, a really tasty and also very large fish. Right. Um, you catch those in animal crossing. 
Yeah, oh, I love that game. Yeah. <laughs> my my youngest son and my wife played the heck out of that game when it came out. It was like the perfect pandemic game. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, it's so much fun. I bought it after I took my qualifying exams to celebrate. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to derail our conversation. Go, <laughs> go ahead. Lane Snapper, not Red Snapper. <laughs> yes. Okay. So Lane Snapper is a relative of the Red Snapper. It's a warm water species and... It likes to hang out on coral reefs a little bit closer to shore, and its range is from about North Carolina throughout the Gulf of Mexico and then down south to Brazil. Really? All the way down to Brazil? Yeah. Okay, and and for, forgive me, how, how big is it? I'm sorry if you said. I, I apologize. Oh, no, I, I didn't say. So it's oh, okay. um, medium-sized fish. So the legal catch size is actually 18 inches, and then... The ones that I've caught, or at least for my research, have been, I guess, about to 14 inches in length. Hmm. So a good-sized fish. They, they get pretty good size for eating, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and what color are they? Oh, they're, they're really pretty. Um, so they have yellow stripes. Their body is a pinkish red, and then they have yellow stripes vertically. What? Their are all yellow. Um, except for their tail, that is also a reddish pink. And then they have a black spot um, right towards the end of their body. Hey, I'm going to Google this right now because that <laughs> lane snapper. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Oh, cool. They kind of yeah. have like a they, – they, they're they cool. Oh, my goodness. They're so cool. <laughs> I love them. They've got like little little spinies too. Like they're, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Very cool. <laughs> okay, so that's what they are and where they live in the world. Why why are you studying them? So, um they're really popular among recreational fishers. So, in the Gulf of Mexico, um a lot of people are fishing millions of pounds of them out of the Gulf. Um what? and um they're also uh kind of popular commercially at least within the United States, but in more like South American countries where um artisanal fishing is really important. They're like a cash, a cash fish there. Oh, they're a big deal. Yeah, they taste really good. And so people fish them a lot. Um, but at the same time, we don't know a lot about its history, its life history, um, its, its numbers and how well it's doing, essentially. So my research is focusing on making sure that um, the age structure of the population is in a healthy way to make sure that we're fishing it sustainably. Okay, so can you can you run our audience through what that research cut like uh what what you what you would do to to research this fish? Like what are some okay. of your what what are some of the things you do? So, um we work with the local government and and the federal government to collect samples. And so essentially people go out fishing whether it be commercial fishers or um federal fishers who are doing something for for research. They go out and they catch the the fish. They measure its length, its total length, which um, is a different measurement than its fork length, but both are important. And then we take the sex of the fish and its otoliths, which is um, my favorite part. That's what I spend the most time with. And so uh, we use those to age, age the fish and then determine how many males and females are there. And then what is the range of the age of the population? Are there more one-year-olds than there are 14-year-olds. And so we use that kind of information to determine the health of the population. Does it have enough individuals that are going to be able to breed, to create more fish? 
And we use all of that to generate models to determine um, if we're fishing sustainably and how to continue fishing sustainably. Oh, nice. So you're organizing like an incredible amount of data. It, it is. It's a fair amount. I think right now I have around 400 fish that I've been studying for this particular study, but I've done others that have um, thousands of fish. Oh my goodness. So all of this is important for the overall health of the fish and then of the fish population. Mm-hmm. Are, are you are you hoping then to like have some communique with government agencies and say, hey, this is this population's healthy here or, or we should like, are you hoping to give them recommendations? I guess what I'm saying. Yes. So, um, you know, every now and then it, there's a different amount of years per fish. They do a, um, a report on the status of the fishery. And so the last report that we did on lane snapper, it was determined to be a data limited fish. So we don't know enough to make really informed decisions, policy decisions about how oh. we manage the fish. So, I'm hoping that with the data that I collect and um, the information that I'm able to gather from that data is able to inform better management policies for the species. So you mentioned you caught some of your samples. Um, Do you hop on a boat to go catch them? Can you catch them from the shore? Like, how does that work? Yeah. So um, I personally have a fishing license that is only from the shore. So I go out to local piers and I'll just, you know, throw out whatever bait that I have and wait to catch something. And they happen to be pretty popular um, in Miami and throughout the Florida Keys. And so I usually catch at least one or two every fishing trip. What? What kind yeah. of what kind of bait do you use? Like what <laughs> is it a worm? I don't have no idea. <laughs> um, so uh Snapper in general, I've been told like live bait. So um, I've used shrimp to to catch. And then I've also caught some with frozen squid. (laughs) It's so crazy. (laughs) You just got some random live shrimp. That's just so alien for us because we're not on the coast, right? right. I'm I'm imagining you can go. There's somebody selling them out of a bucket somewhere. You're just like, (laughs) is that true? I don't even know. Yeah, that's exactly it. Actually, what? No way. (laughs) When I bought my pole, we went to a bait shop that was just off of the main road. And I literally bought a bucket and a bubbler. And then they had the shrimp and they just poured them in. And I (laughs) poured the shrimp in. He's like, (laughs) time to go fishing. (laughs) So, okay. You caught them for your research. Did you catch them for your supper too or your lunch? Um, Fortunately, yes. I. I wasting anything, um, even like live animal samples, of course. So I make sure that if I'm catching them, I have somebody who wants to eat them as well. So I can gather my samples and then also, um, feed somebody. Oh, that's cool. Mm -hmm. You're doing science and it's nutritious. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I might, we might have to bug you a little later for some like recipes for cooking fish because, uh, I'm sure you've got some if you've uh, if you've ate them before. Definitely. So you know, I, I've caught a lot of samples this past year, and my boyfriend has found lots of ways to bake them, fry them, flay them, <laughs> all these different seasonings that he uses. Nice. It's, 
when we go to the coast, we always try to get fish, uh, like eat fish. But you know, any fish that comes inland is always like, how many days old is this fish? Right. Uh, it's definitely not caught by somebody like yourself on the pier with a bucket of shrimp. It's like <laughs> it's like been packed in dry ice for a week or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. What else do you do with a lane snapper besides just kind of help the population? Um, do you do some kind of like genetic testing or sequencing or something like that? Yeah, so um, we're studying the age and growth, but for my dissertation, there's also a genetic component. Um, Earlier in like the early, maybe late 90s, um, there was a study on, uh, it was a genetic study. It was actually closer to like 2013, I think. I'll have to fact check myself on that one. But um, there was a study that was done that found there might be two genetically distinct populations within the Gulf of Mexico. And so if, if that's the case, then what my study hopes to look at is what are these genetic differences? Um, do they have different growth rates? And are these populations, I guess, breeding with each other or not? And I'm also looking at that from the samples that I collected from Belize. So I collected samples from Belize, um, the Gulf of Mexico, and different coasts of Florida. And so I'm hoping to determine if there's a genetic connection between all of these populations or if each of them are isolated and have their own kind of population dynamics going on that we should manage separately. Oh, wow. Okay. So how do you, do you, do you look at the structures of the fish or is it like right down to their DNA? So using their DNA, so I collect fin clips from my species and I haven't gotten into this portion that much. I'm still in the sampling um, mm. phase. But we collect the samples and then essentially we um, send them out to be processed so we can look at yes, their DNA and different aspects to see how closely related are the populations to each other and are they exchanging genetic information. You mentioned you got samples from Belize. Like, did you go to Belize or did like some people grab some in Belize and bring them back to you? Uh, I had the uh, fortunate opportunity to actually go. So What? No way. That's yeah, cool. it was so much fun. Um, I wrote a grant to do some study there. Um, and so I, I won the grant and they paid for me. They funded my research to go there and collect samples so I could create um, a growth curve for the population down there. Oh, wow. So Belize is in, is it on like the coast in Central America? Am I, am I right? Where like it's yes. kind of, Yeah. I'm just trying so to think, is it coast to, is it close to Costa Rica? I don't know. Uh, I think it's on I think it's in that same stretch of, of land, but on opposite ends. So did you did you just go like a hop on boat to boat and then uh like crash on the boats? Like was it a boating trip or were you able to like be on land in Belize? Um so I I I flew there and um I had two portions. So there I when I landed in Belize City, I had to take uh, a small plane. This was the smallest plane that I've ever been on in my life. It was terrifying. Um, and we had to take a small plane from Belize City to a smaller town where I then took a boat an hour out to um, a reef. And I stayed there for a couple of days collecting samples. Oh, cool. <laughs> so was it one of the planes with like the propellers on it and then the pilot was wearing sandals and you're like, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> it it was that small and like you could reach out and touch the pilot on his shoulder. You oh, okay. 
I've been on some small planes before, and it's like as the plane gets smaller, the what the pilot seems to wear gets more and more informal until they're like <laughs> in like a Hawaiian shirt and they've got they've got like sandals on, and they're like, "Oh yeah, I'm Pilot Jeff." I'm like, "Oh my <laughs> goodness, okay." Hopefully, you know what you're doing, Jeff. So yeah, it was it was really scary. <laughs> oh oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that would, but it was, it was the whole trip. It must've been an amazing experience. Um, it, it was, so that was my first time traveling abroad by myself. Um, so that, that was exciting and mm. scary at the same time. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, just kind of flying somewhere and getting on a boat with people that you just met that day and driving an hour into the ocean. There's something kind of, uh, it gives me a rush, but. Um, so exciting though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun, and I learned a lot, and I got to collect a lot of samples that have been really helpful towards. Oh my- wow! Do you, are you are you one of the people that are impervious to seasickness, or do you get seasickness from being out? Fortunately, I've I've never been seasick, whether yeah. it's a small boat or a giant boat. Um, I've been perfectly fine, so that's how I feel like I know I chose the right career. Yeah, exactly. See, I've never I've been on boats all the time, and I I don't even know what what's going on with people who get seasick, like people get on a boat. Uh, like we, we, uh, I, I run a marine biology trip once a year to the West coast of Canada, to Vancouver Island. There's a, there's a research center there called Bamfield. And mm-hmm. we get, we get out on the boat in like 30 seconds. You can see the kids that are probably going to not, you know, be able to hold down their supper. Oh, no. And I'm just like, I was like, what's going on? Like, it's just, it's just so weird. Right. I, <laughs> So that's, I, I don't know, you probably have colleagues that are, you know, they're great at crunching the numbers and doing the samples, but they'll never go out on the ocean because it just, the boats just wreck them. So <laughs> yeah, I have people in my lab who, um, they love marine science, but they don't even want to see a fish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. You got, you got the whole package you got, <laughs> and you can catch them yourself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Okay, so uh, let's switch gears a bit. Um, one of the questions we always ask our guests is for uh, a pet story. Um, do you have a story about a pet from your life? Because we are the podcast, you know, pause and science. Uh, <laughs> do, you have a, do you have a pet story you could share? Yes. So um, growing up, I've, I've had a lot of pets. I've had, I think, three cats and three dogs. Um, I've had turtles, I've had hamsters, we've had birds. So we've kind of covered it all. It's like um, you had a zoo. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> you just a <laughs> so um, we've always had a lot of animals. And so when um, I was thinking about my pet story, I had to call my family to see you know, which, which animal we should highlight. Mm. And my sister reminded me about our hamsters. And so in, I think, middle school, I, my, my newest best friend, she had a hamster and she convinced me that it would change my life if I had. <laughs> and so I was convinced and um, they then convinced my parents and they bought both myself and my sister hamsters. And we said that they were brothers, and <laughs> <laughs> separate hamster condos uh, in adjacent rooms. And so they were awesome pets. Um, but occasionally they would escape from their, their homes. And so like one time, well, there were multiple times where they would both escape at the same time. And we had a dog who would also 
us when they were out of their cages. So that was really helpful. But um, <laughs> sister's hamster, it would always run to the kitchen. And that's probably because, you know, there's food scraps somewhere on the floor that it could eat. And my mom was always terrified because when he would escape, and but she wanted to cook breakfast, she was worried that he would be under the oven and we would figure it out too late. And so oh, that- Oh my goodness. I know. So she would wake us up early in the morning to always make sure that our hamsters were in their cages. And if they- <laughs> <laughs> we'd have to spend the next 30 minutes to an hour trying to find our missing hamster um, before she could cook breakfast. And so um, that was that was a common theme. And then my hamster would also like to go on trips around the house. And there was one evening we just couldn't we couldn't find him. And we checked all the usual spots, you know, bathroom, um, under the bed, under the oven, and we could not find him. And so uh, we just we went around, uh, you know, about our business because we thought he would just turn up. And I was working on the computer, and I heard this crunching sound. And I was like, oh, that doesn't sound normal. Uh, <laughs> that could be, is it a bug? And it turned out it was, it was my hamster and he was in the wall. Oh my goodness. So I could hear him behind one of the electrical outlets. And I, of course, freaked out and I was screaming. I was like, mom, <laughs> please, he's in there. He's chewing on wires. What are we going to do? How did he even get in there? And um, we found out that the outlet was directly behind the the medicine cabinet in our bathroom. <laughs> so we ended up having to take the medicine cabinet out of the wall. And when we looked down in between the wall, we could see him just, you know, hanging out, chewing on plaster or whatever. <laughs> and we ended up having to um, put together some of the tubes from his little hamster condo to reach down there. So he would crawl into the tubes. Oh, smart. <laughs> Yeah. So we put like a banana chip in the bottom of the tube and then shoved it between the wall. And sure enough, he crawled right in and we saved him and we started putting tape on the enclosure. So yeah. <laughs> what was the hamster's name? Uh, we were very creative and his name was Hammy. Aw, <laughs> Hammy. Cute. <laughs> That's like, okay, that's great. Yeah. (laughs) It reminds me of Tube City in The Office. Uh, There's like a little throwaway gag where, I don't know if you're familiar with the the TV show, The Office. Mm -hmm. Uh, Michael was like building Tube City and it was like, anyways, it was a, Jim, Jim was like, no, you can't have Tube City, Michael. (laughs) But so it's funny. You mentioned that it actually, you engineered a path out of the wall for your hamster. (laughs) It has a use. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's great. Well, that's cool. Not a lot of people share hamster stories as their pet story. So that's great. Um, we have people that uh, have hamsters and, and gerbils and things like that. And they love them. Um, mm-hmm. astro- astrophysicist, uh, Sophia, uh, Sophia Gadnasser, uh, she has a uh, little gerbils. I think she names them after parts, like a uh, little sub- subatomic particles. So. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for sharing your pet story. Mm-hmm. Um, the other the other question we ask our guests for is a super fact. And um, a super fact is something that you know that when you tell people, it kind of like blows their mind a bit. Um, do you have a super fact you could share with us? Yeah. And so it, it has to do with my research. So I always talk about 
um, aging, so getting the ages of the fish that I study, and people aren't um, always sure how I determine that. And so it's really cool. Uh, the fish, they grow this bone, and it's called an otolith. And people have them too. It's it's an inner ear bone. And so uh, we have three of them. And the sagittal otolith is the one that is most commonly used for aging in bony fish because it's also usually the largest. And so these bones are super cool because just like um, when trees grow, they deposit rings and we age trees counting their rings. Mm-hmm. We do the same thing with these otoliths. What? Like they have, do the bone have, the bones have rings on them or, or. uh, Yeah. So just like when, when trees grow and there's a summer growth period and there's a winter growth period, it's the same uh, with these ear bones. So in the summer months, the fish usually grow a little bit faster. It's warmer. Maybe they have more food and it deposits this kind of translucent band. And then in the winter, when fish growth slows down and the growth decreases, it deposits this more opaque band. And so there's this whole process that we go through to cut down and polish um, and prepare the otolith to be read under a microscope. And once that is all complete, we can look at it under the microscope and then count these summer winter bands to determine how old a fish is. No way. So you're like, this fish is seven years old or whatever. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, just by counting. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine if you, you did that? People who would not understand, not even know what an otolith is, they'd be like, what are you talking about? You're That's like, no, usually- this fish is exactly seven years old, guys. Like, I know. <laughs> that yeah, is yeah. that ahead. is mind-blowing. When I try to explain uh, my research to people, yeah, they're they're really like, "What are you, what are you talking about? You <laughs> ear bones all day?" I'm like, yeah, it's important. <laughs> it's important work. That's cool, and it like obviously it would be a little grisly, but would you be able to do that with a human? Oh, uh, I actually have not looked in into that, but but we have those bones, right? Sure, we do have the bones, and it has to do with seasonal growth. So oh. I imagine it could be possible. Might not work once, you, once you've passed puberty, I guess. You're not really growing anymore. You're Well, some of us grow out. We don't grow up, but uh, <laughs> talking about the pandemic there. so <laughs> Right. Oh, no, but with, with the fish, um, they deposit rings even after they mit, maybe reach their maximum length. Oh, um, they still they still age and they still deposit those seasonal growth rings. And so it's really cool because you can get to, you know, a 100-year-old fish who maybe it matured when it was 40, but it's it's been living its life for 60 more years and and we just found okay. out. What what these fish live to be 100 years old? Some these lane snapper usually only live around uh 18 years. Oh, but, okay. Mm-hmm. But red snapper, they they can live to be like forty or fifty years old. What? No way! Oh my yeah. goodness! Every that's so cool. But also, it's aggravating because dogs don't get to live that long. Oh right, and we love our dogs. <laughs> yeah, I know. If only they could live as long as a red snapper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, that is a very cool super fact. Thank you. 
How just one follow up question? How big are these bones? You said they have you have to look at them under the microscope. Like obviously they're very small. Um, so for lane snapper, they are usually pretty small. Um, some of the the bigger ones that I get are still only the size of my pinky nail. But for mm-hmm. red snapper, they they can get pretty large. Like um, I'm trying to get a thing to estimate, but at least as large as a quarter. Okay. Oh, but then you need the microscope to see the banding, right? Your your eye maybe can't pick that up easily. Yeah. So what we do is mm. um, we cut kind of the middle section of the otolith out and we cut it super thin and then glue it to a microscope slide and then under the microscope with some extra light and some magnification, then we can count the rings. How, how do you glue it? Do you use crazy glue? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I don't know. You said you glue it. <laughs> No, uh, we have to use um, these, uh, I guess, lab grade glues. So- oh, okay. Can't just get some Gorilla glue, glue it there. <laughs> no. <laughs> and, um, also, the glues that we select have to be really clear so they don't kind of mess up how um, oh. counting. So there's two different kinds. There's one that I use that has to be dried under UV light for 24 hours. Oh, wow. And- it's like a resin. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And then there's another one that I use that um, when it's hot is when it becomes more viscous and or it becomes more easily to you know manipulate and then mm-hmm. when it cools is when it hardens and um, we can preserve the samples that way oh it's like a hot glue gun but it, it, <laughs> like it goes clear right that is the perfect analogy yes okay i use a hot glue gun all the time because um my hobby uh, I build like uh, like movie costumes, uh, like, like ner- nerdy costumes. So, um, <laughs> yeah, like for comic cons and stuff. So you need a lot of hot glue to make a, you know, a Mandalorian costume. So <laughs> uh, that's so awesome! I've always wanted to go. I I was um poison ivy for Halloween. <laughs> oh, nice! Go go poison ivy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know, I know, I know a whole bunch of DC cosplayers. They'll be happy to hear that. Um, The last question is a fun one. It lets our audience really get to know you as a, as a person outside of your research. And it's something that you probably, that people love to talk about. And that's their passions outside of, of maybe what they're doing with their job. Um, Some people have talked about their love of tattoos or a hobby or a sport or a cause. Um, And what, what would you like to talk about in the second, this section, Adrienne? Oh, I, I guess I, I have a couple things. Um, but since we were just talking about poison ivy, I want to talk about my plant collection. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I've gotten really into houseplants uh, over the pandemic. I needed something to do with my time and obsessing over plants became what I did. So I now have maybe 80 plants. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, some are inside, some are on the patio, and uh, some of my favorites are um, called alocasias. And so I think I have about five or six different species of those. And just they're so cool. They're so pretty to look at. Um, and they produce these really cool, odd looking flowers that most people probably wouldn't call a flower if they saw it. Um, but I really enjoy taking care of my plants. I started growing sunflowers. And I have um, some snap peas, sugar sugar snap peas. And oh, yum. So I'm looking forward to when those get ripe. I just Googled the alocasia. It's like a fern thing. Like it's got great big leaves, right? Yeah. They have – some of them um, get, you know, taller than people. They're, they're so cool. So hmm. 
Um, they grow really fast down here because they like the humidity and um, they're just really pretty to look at. Man, if we tried to grow that up here, it'd be like SpongeBob every time he went to visit Sandy. He'd just oh, be, yes. He was just like, water! Uh, <laughs> they would not be happy. No. Go ahead. You had uh, another one you wanted to talk about. Oh, yes. So um, I also do a lot of yoga. Um, so I have hmm. um, a, a yoga Instagram page as well, where I kind of, you know, do... I post poses and um, yoga is just a really easy way for me to decompress if I'm having a stressful day in the lab or my my numbers aren't coming out right when I'm, I'm doing my research. Uh, yoga is how I decompress and relax and kind of refocus so I can attack it from a different angle the next day. Do you do you go to classes or if so um, before everything kind of shut down, I, I would go to yoga. Often there was oh, right, yeah. internship that I did in Panama City, Florida, and I was able to go to yoga every, like five days out of the week when I was when I was there, and it was amazing. Um, I do want to get trained, so I'm comfortable kind of you know doing my own thing. But mm -hmm. if you ever wanted to practice with me, then I definitely just suggest we go to a class. Right, man. So you are probably crazy flexible from all of that yoga. Yes. And it's helpful, especially when, you know, you have days where you're on a Zoom call for <laughs> five hours. Being able to do yoga after is a huge relief. Oh, that's cool. Um, I I was not very much of a flexible person until I started late in life uh, martial arts. I did, uh, oh, cool. kung, I did kung fu. So it's like, um, it's, I guess it's like f yoga, but fighting. So... <laughs> <laughs> Not as maybe it's a little more stressful too, uh, in some, some yes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like being flexible is a and also your core is probably crazy strong because, like, I've done <laughs> yoga before and it just wipes you out. Like, people mm -hmm. think it's easy, it is not easy. I mean, it can be easy, um, mm -hmm. but if you want to challenge yourself, it's like, hey, hold this pose, and then your whole stomach falls apart. Like, yeah, it's a full body workout, and yeah. And well, don't always realize. So yeah, I, I feel um, pretty fit, even though we've been on lockdown for so long. I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the diversity, equity, and inclusion work that I do. Um, so um, the field of marine science is not considered very diverse. So, you know, when I was in college and getting my master's and now getting my PhD, I was usually the only Black person and or Black woman in the room. And so a lot of the work that I do now is to try to make the room more representative of the world. So I do um, kind of outreach and I work with the university to try to recruit more diverse um, students so we can get people who aren't typically seen in marine science or that maybe people don't think of as a scientist into the field and get passionate about a career that perhaps they didn't know um, was within their reach. Do you, do you feel it's going okay for you? Like, are you getting, are you getting good feedback about that? Um, so there have been a lot of groups, um, especially in this past year that have uh, come together that try to um, bring together scientists of different backgrounds, because a lot of times in our field, we may be the only person that, that looks like us. Mm. And so they create these organizations, um, Weems is one of those organizations. I want to get the, the acronym right, so I'm going to look it up. But 
It stands for Black Women in Ecology, Evolution, and Marine Science. And so that's one of the groups that I um, am a part of. And so that brings together Black women in marine science so that we can kind of network and mentor each other and and help each other through the process of maybe getting a PhD um, in marine science. Oh wow, that's that's so admirable. Um, I, I, I'm that's so that's so great that you know, like maybe there's there's young kids that will see you and say, "Hey, they, you look like me. You will be that person that will be their their hero in in going forward." Yeah, they can see a marine biologist that that they can relate to, and I, I did not have that growing up. So it's nice to be able to provide that for the next generation of scientists. Oh, cool! So so passionate about plants. Mm-hmm. And um, and yoga, but also making making the world a more diverse place in your field. Yes. Wow. You know, you could you should go to Comic Cons. You sound like you are a hero. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> you got the yoga strength, and uh, you know, you got the poison ivy skill set, and <laughs> <laughs> I'd be really excited about that costume. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're at the end of our, our chat, Adrian. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, uh, thank you for reaching out to me. Yeah, where where can people find you on social media? On Twitter, uh, you can find me at, at Miss um, Sophisticated. <laughs> I love it. So uh, I'll spell it out. It's um, M-S and then S-O-F-I-S-H-T-I-C-A-T-E-D. And that's um, my Twitter. My Instagram is sophisticated. So spell the same way, underscore PhD. Okay, we'll make sure those links are in the show notes. Thank you. Well, it was uh, it was my pleasure to talk to you. Um, I learned so much about this new type of fish, this lane snapper. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and about, how do you say it again? Odolets? Odolets? Odolith? L-O-T-O-L-I-T-H. Well, you take care of yourself, and uh, I'm excited to see where your research comes out and, you know, in a couple of years. It is, it's a, such a cool project. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me. Okay, right, here we go. It's time for Woo or Wow on the Science Podcast, and it's a gong show today. It's the last day of school, and I've roped a couple teachers, three teachers, into doing Woo or Wow <laughs> as a group. Uh, we'll see how that goes. I have Jackie Shukin, Daniel Newton, and Graham Walton. So together as a team, we might get Graham a win. <laughs> I, I, I don't have high hopes. <laughs> you don't? Nope. <laughs> are you guys happy the year's over? Or do you have big plans? Or are you just going to go home and veg for a couple of days? Definitely vegging for a couple of days. Yeah. Yes. What's Danielle doing? Danielle didn't answer. She's... Well, yeah, just relaxing. Okay. All right. Sleep Sounds in the good. basement to avoid the heat. Oh, the heat is ridiculous. Oh. I I, uh, I I put a bunch of towels in the um, freezer and I draped them over Bunsen and, and Beaker just to keep them cool. Oh, um, that's good thinking. Yeah, so hot. Uh, anyways, okay. So wow works this way for people. Maybe this is the first time you're listening to the podcast. I read three statements. Two of them are fake and only one is true. And my team of science teachers has to find the true statement and the category this week because we have a fish expert is going to be about fish okay okay do do any of you fish go fishing i have fished twice i think graham are you a secret angler no uh, not even close (laughs) (laughs) okay well this is great you're all you don't don't know okay here we go so anyways (laughs) all right 
So remember, there's only one true statement, two fake statements. Uh, but you can you can help each other as we go. All right. Statement one: Most fish have taste buds all over their body. Hmm. Do we have to say whether it's true or false right away? No, you can okay. you can wait till the end, or you can like help your team if you think if you if or you can wait till the end. Doesn't matter. Okay. Yeah. No idea. Read no them all. Okay. Statement two: Fish sleep show the same brain waves as humans when humans sleep. Okay. Okay. Statement three, more people play golf and tennis than people who fish for sport. I think it's the brainwave one. Yeah. That's my gut feeling. Do you think that's the true one? What about you, Graham? I would love to just ride your coattails right now. <laughs> no, don't do that. No, the, the the taste bud ones immediately sent off my BS detector, but that's probably not a good sign. But oh, so okay. we should pick that one. Yeah, so maybe that one. <laughs> no, that, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's the brainwave one. Yeah, I think despite the fact that there's three people here and none of us fish, I think there is a lot of fishers. Yeah, but I think so. Yeah. Let's do the brainwave one. Okay. Okay. So you think the the brainwave one is the true statement? Yes. Okay, final answer, science teachers. We're going with the brainwaves. Okay. So which uh, let's take a look at the the third the third statement. More people play golf and tennis than people who fish for sport. It's actually the other way. So that one is the one of the untrue statements. More people fish than people who play golf or tennis. And it's by a huge amount, actually. Well, fishing's way cheaper. So that makes sense. <laughs> This is true. This is true. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Okay, so we're down to two statements: taste buds versus brain waves. What do you What do you guys want to hear first? Well, tell us about the taste buds. Okay, so if this statement turns out to be true, you lose. No, see, and if it's false, you win. Oh, I thought you said it was true. Yeah. Okay. Well, if it is true, you've lost, and if it is false, you win. Right. Okay. That's right. Okay. Quick test. Most fish have taste buds all over their body. That statement is that's the true statement. Oh. They do. Most fish right. do have taste buds all over that's their funny. body. Um, and fish brains do not show the same brain waves as humans. They have sleep like periods, but um, they do not have any kind of the same brain waves as humans do when they sleep. Ah, uh, too bad. Too bad. Sorry, Graham. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad to keep the streak alive. Yeah. <laughs> See, we should have gone with the taste bud one when you said when you said maybe that was it. <laughs> always do the opposite of what I said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's okay. I don't think there's a lot of fish science in any of the stuff we teach, is there? No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. That's that's a new physical adaptation that I get to talk about in grade nine, though. So that's good. Yeah. There you go. You know who could have helped us? Daryl. I bet you if Daryl was here, because I'm pretty sure Daryl fishes. But why do they have the taste buds? Tell us. I don't, I don't know. That's not my job. It's just. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. It's time for story time with me. Adam. If you don't know what story time is, story time is when we talk about stories that have happened within the past one or two weeks. Dad, do you have a story? We have been suffering through a heat wave in Red Deer that has moved on from British Columbia. And the temperatures have been in the high 30s for four or five days in a row. Woot, woot. 
Yeah, so great for you. I love it. I love the heat. Bring it on. No, it's way too hot. No, it's not. It's so it feels good. <laughs> so to keep the dogs cool, I soak some towels and froze them. I call them freezy towels. And I put them on the dogs, and they love it. They love wearing the freezy towels, even uh, Bunsen. I'm not sure they love it. Well, I don't know. Beaker is so tired. She's Beaker is so Beaker's Beaker's so hot. She's just lying. She can't even deal with it. They melt into the floor. Yeah. Anyways, so <laughs> okay. Anyways, um, we have this. Well, not we. Uh, my my father-in-law and my niece Melissa bought this swimming pool together, but they put it up at our house just because the location's better, and. We let Beaker swim in the pool. It was super cute. She can swim like a little beaver. She, uh, like oh, a little muskrat? Like a little muskrat. She looks a bit like a capybara. Yeah, she's super cute. She's really good at swimming. I think it's supposed to cool down tomorrow or the next day, but it's still really hot today. So hot. That's my story. Okay, Mom, do you have a story? I do my planning for the week for school, which is school's out for summer. Woohoo! So I don't have to think about that until the fall. But normally uh, I would plan for the week and I would work all weekend. Um, and sometimes I would work late into Sunday night to make sure that I had everything ready to roll. Out. Sunday night or Monday morning? Uh, spoiler alert. Sometimes I didn't get it all done on Sunday night till 2.15 in the morning. So I was up at 5, rolling it out on Monday morning. Thank you, Jason. <laughs> Thank you for that's the method of my madness. Um, however... It has been so hot, and I finished up actually early, 11.15. What? I must be getting better at planning this last week. And I was like, where's Bunsen? Where's Bunsen? It's time for bed. And I looked out, and he was just laying on the deck, enjoying (laughs) the cooler air. And I said, come on in, buddy. He probably didn't want to. He looked at me with those eyes, and he's like, really? (laughs) Can I I maybe just please stay out here? Ah. so he, he is a cutie pie. I love him. He's a cartoon. He looks like a cartoon. He does look like a cartoon. And that's my story. All right, it's time for my story. My story is a bit of a short one. Um, my story is about Beaker and Bunsen, actually. So I have a job now. I am employed at Staples. Woot, woot. Um, and when I get home from Staples, I don't want the dogs jumping on me because I wear black pants and a red shirt. And with golden uh, golden hair, it becomes uh, very apparent that we have dogs. And it doesn't look very good on a sales representative. So I don't let Beaker jump on me. Because she sometimes does that when you come home. And she like like brushes into your legs. And that leaves so much hair on you, you will not believe. But I don't let her do that. So what she does instead is she just starts licking you. She just starts licking you nonstop. And then Bunsen... Bunsen monkey see monkey do he starts licking you too and now you're being drenched with beaker and Bunsen lick I have to go downstairs to avoid it because I don't want to become soaking wet because of beaker and Bunsen lick Bunsen lick is worse than beaker lick Bunsen lick is so much worse than beaker lick because beaker lick sure it's warm but her tongue is smaller Bunsen's (laughs) tongue has um yeah Bunsen's lick has such higher surface area um, I was wondering, I was noticing that too, because every time I would go outside and then come back in, Beaker would be right at the door and my hands hang right by my side and she uh, just licks my hands. It's like, hello, hello in greeting, let me just lick your hands. Yeah, but it feels like a snake lick you. Bunsen's like a giraffe. Yeah, Bunsen is. It's Beaker's like, like a little... No, and Bunsen's, Bunsen's tongue like comes slurp. like comes right out. It's like... like a, and it's like... Tongue's as big as a cow. It's like a swipe. Cow tongue. It's like a swipe lick. 
Yeah, you can grab it, and then it's like you have Bunsen's tongue. I know. You can grab. It takes your whole fist to grab his tongue. Yeah, and you have to like hold on tight because it's slippery. <laughs> Gross. All right, that's a bit um, chaotic, but that's the end of story time. I hope to see you next time on this podcast. Um, bye bye. That's the end of another Science Podcast episode. Thanks for coming back week after week to listen to us. Uh, Special thanks to Adrian Wilson, who talked to us about the lane snapper, her research with fish, yoga, and representation in science. We'd also like to give a special shout-out to our top-tier patrons on Patreon. Without their support, we wouldn't be able to do what we do. If you'd like to hear your name at the end of the podcast, head over to our Patreon page and sign up. Take it away, Chris. Nate Stephenson, Debbie Anderson, Courtney Proven, Renee Hardy, Mary Rader, Shelby Leggett, Dan Fry, Mary Coos, Katia Lynch, Marianne McNally, Andrea Persons, Elizabeth Bourgeois, Karen Beth St. George, Bianca Hyde, Lisa Swartz, Catherine Jordan, Donna Craig, Lila Ashier, Jody Ogren, Liz Button, Kathy Zerker, and Ben Rather.